0: After the Buddha's enlightenment, it said that he spent uh, seven weeks under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, um, under and around the Bodhi tree, just contemplating the realization and the understanding of his great awakening. And then he was wondering who he might be able to share these profound teachings with, And he thought of the five ascetics with whom he had been practicing the ascetic mortifications, disciplines, uh, for many years. And he thought uh, that their minds would be ripe to hear and understand these teachings. So he journeyed on foot from Bodh Gaya to Sarnath. And it said it took him um, about six how long did it take him? <laughs> six weeks, not six days. <laughs> uh, I have it all down here. <laughs> uh, so he, he walked uh, for six weeks from Bodhgaya to Sarnath, which is a small village across the river Ganges from the city of Benares, uh, sometimes known as Varanasi. And on the first, on the full moon, of June uh, he gave his first discourse to these five ascetics and it's the discourse in which he outlined uh, what Jill mentioned last night uh, his teachings which is known of the middle way that is the middle between the extremes of sense indulgence and self-mortification and as part of this first discourse which is called turning the wheel of the Dharma or setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. It was his first teaching after his enlightenment. And it's interesting, this wheel of the Dharma has now rolled over the last 2,600 years across Asia, across Europe, across the oceans to Barry, Massachusetts. (laughs) So it's quite an amazing happening you know, the transmission of these teachings over thousands of years. And in this first discourse, uh, what's included is the structure or the uh, basic foundation of the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are the foundational Buddhist teachings in all the Buddhist traditions. I mean, this is, this is what's basic and in common, uh, in all the traditions, in Theravada, in Mahayana, in Vajrayana. They will center in one way or another or elaborate these Four Noble Truths. So upon hearing the teaching, one of the five ascetics realized the first stage of awakening called stream-enter, or in pali Sotapanna. So this one ascetic heard the teachings and his mind opened to that level of realization. And then practicing over the next few days with the Buddha as their guide, some good karma there, Uh, uh, sorry folks, (laughs) Uh, we're in the dark ages. (laughs) Uh, The remaining four ascetics (laughs) realized the fruit of stream, stream entry, stream winning. Then the Buddha gave the second discourse, which in Pali is called the Anatta Lakana Sutta, which means the discourse on the characteristics of non-self, or no-self. So in his very second discourse, He's laying out the teachings for this central uh, understanding of the teachings, the understanding of non-self. So he gave the second discourse on the characteristics of non-self and all five ascetics became fully enlightened. So we're going to try for that tonight. So the teachings on non-self is really at the heart, uh, the heart of the teachings. It's really critical and central and essential, you know, in the Buddha's understanding of the path to awakening. But unlike the truths and the experience of impermanence or of dukkha, you know, which George talked about the other day and Jill both, unlike the understandings of impermanence and dukkha, which are obvious and not easy, not not difficult to understand, even if we don't fully realize them yet, but we can easily grasp uh, their import. Whereas the teachings on non-self in many ways are counterintuitive, they run counter to our common sense, everyday understanding of who we are. Because we live our lives and we've been taught and grow up with a very strong sense of there's a self here who's experiencing you know, life's experiences. And that's hardly questioned. Certainly there's not, nothing in our culture, or even particularly in... Western philosophical traditions that even remotely refer to this idea or understanding of non-self. In fact, our very language, the languages that we use, most languages, reinforce the sense of I. I is the subject you know, of, of our grammar in many ways. So we're continually reinforcing the notion that there is an I who is the subject of all experience. It's no wonder that when we hear non-self, what can that possibly mean? So the Buddha went on to explain it and to really show us how we can begin to open to this understanding for ourselves. Now I'm gonna be reading at different times some excerpts from this sutta. At the sutta explaining the characteristics of non-self. When you listen to the words, try to listen to them as if it were the Buddha speaking directly to you rather than as just Buddhist philosophy. Because if you're listening to it as Buddhist philosophy Very easy for the mind to get in, you agree, you disagree. It's not that helpful because it's all on the intellectual conceptual level. If you listen to the words as if the Buddha is speaking to you just as he was speaking to the five ascetics, you know, and you really let the words in, into your heart and relate them to your experience, then they have transformative power. And maybe there will be (laughs) five or six or a hundred enlightened beings at the end. So in reading from the sutta, there's one word that I'm not going to translate from the Pali, and that is the word dukkha. And the four noble truths all revolve around this word. The first noble truth, is the truth of dukkha. The second noble truth is the cause of dukkha. The third noble truth is the end of dukkha. The fourth noble truth is the path leading to the end of dukkha. So it seems pretty important that we have a clear understanding of what this word means. The problem is that in English, there is no one single word that captures the full range of what's meant by this Pali term. As many of you probably know, most commonly, it's translated as suffering. The truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, the path leading to the end. And in many situations, this translation is appropriate. We're all familiar with the pain and the suffering that can occur and does occur in our minds and bodies during our lives. So this is not not some esoteric experience. We all experience suffering of different kinds. So one of the meanings of dukkha is suffering, and that's fairly easy to understand. But how do we reconcile the Buddha's far-reaching statement that all conditioned things, which means everything that arises in our experience, in the mind, in the body, in the world, it's all part of the conditioned flow of experience, how do we reconcile his statement that all conditioned things are dukkha, with our experience of many things in life being pleasurable. So how does, how does that fit together? If, if we take dukkha just to mean suffering, then it doesn't really make sense because as we know there are much of our lives, there may not be any particular suffering. We may be enjoying beautiful things, happy states. Here, words other than suffering may more fully convey what Dukkha means. And it's important to understand this because then we can enter into uh, this discourse and be receiving the full import of what the Buddha is trying to say. So words like unreliable, Dukkha meaning unreliable, or insecure, or ultimately unsatisfying. These terms more completely encompass what is meant by the term dukkha. So when the Buddha says all conditioned things are dukkha, it's not that they're always suffering, but they are always unreliable. They are always incapable of giving lasting fulfillment and satisfaction precisely because they don't last. So in this understanding of dukkha, already we're beginning to relate to it more or relate it more to our life experience. No matter what's arising, it may be very pleasurable and it may be things that bring us a lot of happiness. So even in the enjoyment and even in the happiness, we can still understand the dukkha aspect of them as being unreliable, as being not capable of ultimately fulfilling us. So when you listen to the words, the Buddha's words, from the Sutta, and you hear the term dukkha, keep in mind this more expansive meaning. It doesn't simply mean suffering, although that's one aspect of it. It also means things, all things are unreliable or ultimately unsatisfying and that this, this can apply and does apply and we should investigate for ourselves to see if it really does apply in our lives, can apply to every aspect of our experience. It is this understanding of dukkha, the unreliability of phenomena. And sometimes painful. some, Some of the experiences are suffering, so that's included in it. But it's an understanding, the expanded version, that we can begin to see the connection between our experience and realization of dukkha and of anatta or not-self. There's a very intimate connection between these two aspects. And it's really in understanding the relationship of dukkha to selflessness, of dukkha to anatta, that opens the doorway to freedom, to realization. So this is from the sutta. This is just uh, a few lines from it. So usually discourses, uh, they introduced with a, um, a little preface. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Benares, Varanasi, in the deer park in Sonath. And there he addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five. Remember, these are the five ascetics. The second discourse. He said, bhikkhus. Venerable sir, they replied. The blessed one said this. (coughs) Just one little note on the term bhikkhu, which is often translated as monk or bhikkhuni, nun, but In this context, bhikkhu also has a bigger meaning, and Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's the great translator of our time, of the text, he commented that bhikkhu, in its broadest sense, means anyone who is walking on the path. So in that sense, we're all bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. We're all on the path, walking it, so when the Buddha says bhikkhus, he's really talking to us all, so you should hear it that way. Bhikkhus. Form, and by form, what's meant the physical body, the physical material elements, this is what's included or what's designated by the term form. So you might think just most easily, you might think of it as the body, but it's really all physical elements. Because form is non-self, or body is not self. Or form self, then this form would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to determine, let my form or my body be thus. Let my form or body not be thus. But because form is non-self, it leads to affliction. And it is not possible to determine, let my form be like this. Let my form be not like this. Okay, so I'm going to unpack that a little bit. It's really very simple, but the language, you know, may seem a little archaic. Here the Buddha is highlighting two aspects of the relationship between dukkha and non-self. First, he's saying that the elements of the body lead to affliction. So if we're really self, we we generally don't take those things that lead to affliction and suffering to be I or to be me. But the elements of the body do lead to affliction. And second, these elements, these physical elements are ungovernable. They are ultimately not subject to our will. So he's saying... The body doesn't respond to our commands, let my body be like this, let it not be like this. It's not like that. The body is following its own natural laws. So in two ways, it leads to affliction and the elements are not governable according to our will. That seems clear? Those are two pretty straightforward statements. So we need to investigate this for ourselves. Again, not hearing it as Buddhist philosophy, but seeing, is this true? You know, in my own experience, is this true? And to see how these two aspects of leading to affliction and not being governable, ultimately, how these play out in our lives. So, question is, how do the physical elements lead to affliction? not hard to see, even if very often we don't like to acknowledge it. We can really see the afflictive nature of the elements, what we call the body, in some of the very ordinary activities of our daily life. There is the affliction of hunger and thirst. But we don't often recognize this because for most of, them, for most of us, these afflictions are easily remedied. Right? We're thirsty, we take a drink. We're hungry, we take some food. But it is precisely the dukkha of the elements that leads us to these remedies. Why do we take a drink? Because there's some kind of suffering, of thirst. Why do we eat when we should? Because there's the affliction or the suffering of hunger. You know, for many of us, this suffering is easily remedied, but for millions and perhaps billions of people, these basic needs are not easily fulfilled. And so the dukkha aspect of the elements in those situations becomes extremely obvious. Some time ago I read that over a billion people in the world don't have access to clean, safe drinking water. That's, that's huge. Yeah. If every time we take a drink that's opening us to disease that's that's real affliction, that's suffering. Or one other thing that was part of that same article, it said that millions of women over the whole world often have to walk three or more miles a day to carry 25 pounds of water, just to get the water to drink and to bathe and to wash. So we forget that, you know, and sometimes... (laughs) Some years ago, I was at was my family for Thanksgiving, and we just did a little round saying what we were grateful for. And one of the things that came to mind, I was, I was coming from the three-month retreat uh, teaching, and the fact that water comes out of a tap, the fact that most of the time we can get hot water out of a tap. We don't even think about it, you know, because it's so much part, it's so ordinary. And yet, for many people, that's not available. And when it's not available, it becomes very clear that there is hunger and thirst, or real bodily afflictions, there's suffering involved in this. And because of that, you know, we're moved to different kinds of actions. We can see the afflictive nature of the material elements in you know, the very intense natural disasters that happen. The eruption of volcanoes, floods, hurricanes. These are physical elements. These are just the elements of nature. And yet, in those forms, they're tremendously destructive. You know, And we've all seen the amount of suffering caused by the impact of those elements. We can experience the afflictive nature of the body in the simple necessity to move and change posture in order to relieve discomfort. At a certain point, regardless of what posture you're in, it will become painful. You're walking, feels great. Walking, moving the body. Walk for two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours. Oh, it feels great. I'll just walk for days. No, we get the body gets tired. When it gets tired or sore or achy, we have to rest it. We have to sit or lie down. If you're sitting, oh, great. I'm sitting. I have a nice posture here. I'll just sit till I get enlightened. (laughs) I recommend trying it. (laughs) But what happens? After a certain point, sitting in one posture, the body gets stiff, it gets painful. We have to change the posture in order to relieve the suffering. Oh, well that's okay, I'll just lie down. Lying down will be really comfortable. So I had this thought once in, I was practicing in India, and I was so fed up with the suffering of the body you know, just from the, the postures, I thought. So I got a big piece, like a, a foam, a thick foamy, you know, to, to sleep on, to lie down on. So it was this thick piece of foam. I lay down on my back, nothing crossed. My legs weren't crossed, my arms weren't cro- Just great, supported by this nice soft foam rubber. It was comfortable for about. Might be half an hour, <laughs> you know, forty-five minutes. At a certain point, even in that position, nothing crossed, completely supported, it gets painful. Why? Because the nature of the material elements, there is an afflictive nature in the very elements themselves. It's not that doing something wrong. This is the nature of the elements of having a body, and it's not hard to see if we're paying attention. You know, there's a, there's a little catchphrase which would be very interesting for you to apply in your practice as a tool of investigation. And the catchphrase is, movement masks dukkha. So just, you know, at times just out of interest, every time you move, see if you can pay attention to what's motivating the movement, just to say. Very often, it's not that it's always, sometimes we're moving out of a greed for something (laughs) that may not be associated in that moment with a physical discomfort, but largely Movement masks, we move in order to alleviate, to relieve a kind of stress in the body. So pay attention to that, because that will give you a very direct insight into what the Buddha is saying. Because because form the body is non-self, it leads to affliction, right? Because it's just following its own laws. It's not, it's not that it's subject to our will. What's interesting is that because we're not paying attention in this way, as we alleviate the suffering, either by taking a drink or taking food, or changing posture we confuse how movement masks dukkha with the belief that we're in control of it you know that i'm in control of whether the body feels dukkha or not you know and we're not the very na- it, it's it's obscuring the nature of the elements themselves But at some point or other, the ungovernable nature of these elements, even though we can make these various moves to mask the dukkha, at some point the nature of the elements, the afflictive nature, becomes obvious and unavoidable. Now probably we would all like to stay young and healthy, with a vigorous active body, that can accomplish everything we'd like it to do. But the body is not obliging us in this way. Quite without our agreement, the body ages, and it becomes ill, and it will eventually die. It's subject to all kinds of unwished for ailments, And diseases. This is the nature of the elements. Again, it's not that we've somehow made a mistake in life, we've taken a wrong turn, and on this turn the body ages. And it wouldn't have aged if I had made the right decision. No, it's unavoidable because it is the very nature of the elements. And this is what the Buddha is pointing out to us, and what's so amazing really, is that when we look, it's completely obvious. And yet for the most part in our lives, we don't look. We are distracting ourselves from this very basic truth. It's for this reason that the Buddha said, form the body, the physical elements, is not self. If the body were self, we should be able to determine, let it be like this and not like this. But we can't determine that. Why? Because it is ungovernable according to our will. We can We can influence, and the things we do certainly influence what goes on in the body, but ultimately, things are simply following the laws of nature. And the very laws of nature. And this is. Uh, sometimes people don't like to acknowledge this that the physical elements, the nature of the elements, do lead at times to affliction. So we, we just want to see that and acknowledge yeah, this, is, this is how it is, this is the nature of the body. And so then we're not thrown when, when these afflictions happen to us. You know, yes, this is, this is the Dharma. This is how things are. So what do we do, you know, as we begin to open to this understanding? What do we do in response to it? You know, how do we engage with the body, with the world, with our lives, knowing this? So the Buddha Again, he pointed out, given this nature of the body, that the material elements lead to affliction, he pointed out the way to be free in this. He gave some very specific instructions. He said, bhikkhus, that's all of us, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. So what does abandon mean? You know, all of this is translation from the Pali into English, and sometimes the English words can have a connotation that are not exactly what's meant from the Pali term. So abandon here, abandon what is not yours. It doesn't mean to ignore, it doesn't mean to deny, It doesn't mean to not take care of the body or take care of the material world around us. Rather, the Buddha is saying, these elements in their nature lead to affliction. Don't cling to it. Don't cling to it as being I or mine. Don't cling to things staying a certain way. Because they won't. Everything is in a process of change and transformation. The whole world is in this process of change. And yet how much of our suffering in our lives on all kinds of levels happen because there's some situation that we want to stay. You meet the love of your life and are hopelessly or hopefully in love. And you want the person, yes, I, I love you just the way you are, and don't change. <laughs> well, if anything is a setup for suffering, <laughs> that's going to be it. The Buddha is saying, don't cling to any aspect of this process, because things are gonna change and not always change according to our liking. Sometimes it will, but sometimes it won't, and we don't necessarily have control of that. So the challenge is really to apply this understanding. Again, to know it intellectually or to grasp it conceptually, that's a beginning, but that's not enough we actually have to apply this understanding in how we're relating to the experiences of our body, of our mind. You know, the identification with our bodies is so deeply conditioned. I mean, what's the first response often just to the question, who are you? This is me. This is who I am. It's like we point to our bodies, right? We, we so deeply, it was so deeply conditioned to take the body to be me, to be self. So how can we keep these understandings of non-self? Because the elements of the body, the material elements, do lead to affliction in so many different ways. And they are ungovernable. We can't control Oh, let my body stay like this. It's not going to happen. So how do we integrate this understanding in our lives and and really keep it in the forefront of our awareness? Because again, none of what I've said, I'm sure comes as a surprise to you. It's all obvious as soon as we look, as soon as we pay attention. But for the most part, we just put it on the back burner. Because uh, as... Al Gore said not about this, it's an inconvenient truth, We don't like to see it, but in not liking to see it, we do the very things which cause more suffering, which is to get attached and to cling. And so that just exacerbates the whole situation. So how do we keep this awareness in the forefront, this understanding in the forefront of our lives? There's a collection of discourses Uh, In Pali, it's called the Anguttara Nikaya, and it means the numerical discourses. And it's just just an arrangement of the Buddhist texts uh, in a certain way. And in it, the Buddha taught a series of reflections that can really have a very powerful effect, both in our formal meditation, but even more importantly, just in how we're living our lives, our everyday lives. Bhikkhus, there are these five themes that should often be reflected upon by a householder or one who has gone forth. What five? One. I am subject to old age. I am not exempt from old age. I am, too, I am subject to illness. I am not exempt from illness. So as you hear these reflections, just, is this true for you? Could you say this to yourself and really be connecting it to your experience? I am subject to illness, I am not exempt from illness, I am subject to death, I am not exempt from death. I must be parted from everyone and everything dear and agreeable to me. How often do we reflect on that? That one way or another we are going to be separated from everybody we love and everybody that's dear to us. And I'm not exempt. I am the owner of my karma, which means I am the owner or the heir of my actions. I have karma actions as my origin, as my relative, as my resort. I will be the heir of whatever karma actions, good or bad, that I do. So this is powerful. That's what I referred to in my talk the other night, the understanding that what we do matters. Our actions of body, speech, and mind bring about results. We are the heirs of our own actions and the motivations behind them. So frequently practicing these recollections I am subject to old age, I am not exempt. I am subject to illness, I am not exempt. I am subject to death, I am not exempt. I must be parted from everything I hold dear, and I am not exempt. I am the heir of my actions. So keeping in mind, and the Buddha is suggesting to reflect daily, that these are five daily reflections, they are a wake-up call for us to what is true. So it's not something fanciful, and it's not some metaphysical proposition. The Buddha is pointing us to some Very obvious truths of our lives, but ones that, for the most part, we don't really spend much time contemplating. And probably, if you spoke to somebody who was not involved in some kind of practice like this, and you said you're contemplating old age, illness, and death, they they would, you know, why would you want to do that? That's that's morbid. It's not morbid at all, it actually is. We are connecting with what is true. Krishnamurti, the great Indian teacher, uh, he said, it is the truth which liberates, not your efforts to be free. So really our efforts are to see what is true. And in the realization or the seeing of what is true, that's what liberates us. Now, what's really strange, I've, I've noticed this so much in my own mind, having done these reflections, somewhat. You know, I'm subject to illness, and I'm not exempt. I've just seen in myself so often when I'm feeling well and energetic, and then I begin to feel some, you know, the scratchy throat or the cold coming on or whatever, some illness, there very often is this moment of, I'm not sure whether indignation is too strong a word, (laughs) (laughs) but it comes out of the feeling that I am exempt. (laughs) Why should this be happening to me? (laughs) So it's really striking to me How even though on one level we know that this is just the nature of things, this is the Dharma, we still do feel exempt. You know, yeah, this is true for everybody else, but somehow I'm in a special category. Somewhere deep inside of us, at least in me, I can see that attitude. So the reflection, the recollection, just keeps reminding us that we're not exempt. That this this is true for all of us. These reflections really are a wake-up call to us that can awaken us from the enchantment of thinking that we are exempt and that somehow if we just get everything right we'll go through life without any of these things happening. It's like, no, that's just fantasy. And the, the reflections, the recollections and doing them, keep reminding us of that. So one other aspect of this non-exemption. Um, so one time I was teaching a retreat for environmental activists out in New Mexico at this beautiful wilderness ranch, and it was really a beautiful place. And on the last day of the retreat, we all went for a walk. It was way out in the wilderness in New Mexico, in the high mountains. Um, so we went for a, a walk just along the river that ran through the property. There were A lot of rocks, and, but it was, it was beautiful. Uh, it was a fun hike. But on the way back, I slipped. On, it had rain, so the rocks were slippery, and I slipped. And I hyperextended my knee. And at the time... It, it, i managed to get back i wasn't too concerned and then i was going to give the talk that night in those days i was still sitting cross-legged things have changed (laughs) (laughs) not to my liking but there it is and so before giving the talk i thought you better not sit cross-legged you know you did something to your knee but i overrode that thought so i started giving an hour talk I couldn't get up at the end. I I had to be carried back to my room. (laughs) It was pretty embarrassing. (laughs) I mean, it really had damaged my knee from doing that. And so all night long, my mind was just going over this whole thing and self-judgment and, you know, how could I have done that? and, And I had a really busy teaching schedule. I was scheduled to go to Europe and just a very busy summer was ahead of me. And I didn't know Know what I was going to do, and so there's a lot of agitation in my mind. And then at a certain point, I was up all night, and, and then sometime in the middle of the night, a certain mantra arose in my mind that kind of put the whole thing in a helpful perspective. And the, the phrase that came to my mind was anything can happen anytime. You yeah. know? Anything can happen any Conditions are constantly changing and don't have control over it. And you might hear that and think, oh, that kind of thought might lead to a kind of defensiveness or paranoia. Um, anything can happen anytime. <laughs> but ju- it was just the opposite. When that thought came to mind and I realized the truth of it, the heart and mind relaxed. So instead of blaming myself for it, or instead of thinking, oh, if only I had protected myself in a certain way, this wouldn't have happened, the understanding that anything can happen anytime and does, it actually allowed the heart to relax, to become non-defensive. Yeah, this is just part of life. These things happen. And it made the whole situation, at least internally, tremendously more easeful So in a very similar recollection, the Buddha he offers a reflection that reminds us of the universality of these experiences. It wasn't just that I had done something stupid and then this happened. It's anything can happen anytime, and this is true for all of us. So this is what the Buddha said. Bhikkhus, what is subject to old age grows old. When this happens, the noble disciple reflects, I am not the only one for whom what is subject to old age grows old. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to illness grows ill. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to death dies. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to destruction is destroyed. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to loss is lost. And I find that just a very helpful reminder because so often we personalize these difficulties that we're going through, whatever they may be, as if not only if it's, oh, this is only happening to me, and why me? But then we often blame ourselves in one way or another. And we forget the universality of these truths. That this is, this is the nature of having a mind and body. And it's what happens to everyone. We're all in the same boat with this. So we really begin to understand that our life situations, whatever they may be, and we all have different conditions, but they're really not unique. You know, we share so much. We are all part of this great matrix of life and death and creation and destruction. You know, this big picture of what being alive entails. And when we take this big picture, and see that it's universal, it really opens the possibility of relating to it in a wiser way and in a freer way. So we come to realize both the aspect of non-self that is dukkha, and that's the aspect where the elements lead to affliction, where it's not governable, Right. So that's the Dukkha aspect of non-self. But there's also an aspect of non-self that is freeing, that is ultimately freeing. And this is why this realization you know, of the Buddhas is so powerful for us. It's really the, uh, the heart of what makes liberation possible. we begin to understand this freeing aspect that not a single element of this mind or body or experience in the world, not a single aspect of what arises belongs to us. That from the very beginning there is not a self to whom it could belong. So this is... This is like a radically different way of understanding our life experience. Because mostly in our lives, it's like everything refers back to me, right? I'm the one who's knowing it all. I'm the one who's experiencing it all. This is my body. So to have the understanding that nothing in our experience belongs to us, And that there, in fact, was never a self to whom it could belong. So instead of this, referring everything back to me, we begin to experience life like this, where all experience is arising and passing by itself, but there's no self-referential aspect to it. Experience is just what it is. So this has very important implications. Again, from the Buddha. Suppose, bhikkhus, people were to carry off, carry away, the grass, the sticks, the branches, and foliage of this jetta grove. That that was a grove uh, that was offered to the Buddha for you know, for his retreats and for the monks to stay and the monks and nuns. Uh, Suppose people were to carry off the grass, the sticks, the foliage, you know, from this Jetta's Grove, or to burn them, or to do with them as they wish. As you saw this happening, would you think people are carrying us off, or burning us, or doing with us as they wish? No, Venerable Sir, because that is neither our self nor belongs to our self. So that part's pretty obvious. You know, if people are taking things out of the forest, you know, and burning it, or doing whatever, we wouldn't think that they're doing it to us. Why? Because we know that's certainly not self. Here the Buddha makes this very radical um, assertion which we need to verify for ourselves. He said, so too, bhikkhus, form of the body, the material elements, is not yours. Feelings are not yours. Perceptions is not yours. Volitional formations are not yours. Consciousness is not yours abandon it, or let go of clinging, when you have let go of clinging to what is not yours, that will lead to your welfare and happiness." So here we're getting to the heart of what not-self means in terms of relationship, you know, to our own life experience. So, the question is, given all these teachings about impermanence and the ungovernability of the elements and of non-self, why is the sense of self, the view of self, the concept of self, so strong in us? If it's not true, and the Buddha is saying, It's really a misperception, we're misperceiving things. If it's not true, why is it so universally and so deeply conditioned in us? Now, how does this sense of self or the idea of self arise? So when we observe the body that most of us take to be who we are. This, this is me, this is the body, my body. When we look at it more closely, not superficially, we see that what we're calling the body is a collection of different systems. There's the skeleton, you know, made of bones. And there's the circulatory system and all the blood vessels. And there's the nervous system, and all the nerves running through the body and the organs. So when we begin to really look deeply at what the body is, we get a very different picture than our usual perception of the body. You know, seen in this way, we probably would not say, the gallbladder is me, I'm the gallbladder, or I'm the liver, (laughs) unlikely. Yet, it's so strange. We wrap all of this up very nicely in skin and we become entranced with the package. You know, we're not looking to see what's inside the package, and so we get very, it's wrapped up in skin and we get very attached to the body, and not only to our bodies, to other people's bodies. But how attached would we be if we had x-ray vision? If we could really see what's underneath this very nice covering? (laughs) We might not be so clingy. (laughs) (laughs) And of course the corollary of our attachment to the body or attachment, attachment to our own body is the fear of losing it. You know, why do people have fear of death? Because of attachment to the body. So we often have fear of death, of our own body, or there's grief at the thought of losing the body of somebody that we love or attach attached to. You know, there's grief at other people's death. Why? Because we're not seeing what the body really is. We're just, we're satisfied with this superficial perception. And if you look even deeper on a cellular level or an atomic level, the body is mostly empty space. You know, if if in all of the atoms, the amount of matter in the atom compared to the space between these atomic particle level, the amount of matter is minuscule relative to the amount of space. And so I read someplace, and um, I hope it's true because it's such a startling, it's such a startling statement. And it sounds like it could be true. Uh, and, uh, unfortunately, I don't remember the source, but uh, it was in some scientific article. It said, At all of the matter of the body, if if all of the matter, the physical material elements were condensed, it would be no larger than a particle of dust. So is that, I find that totally remarkable. I mean, you know, of all the atoms, you know, the electrons and protons and all those subatomic particles which are, you know, incredibly small, (laughs) so if all of that were compressed, it wouldn't be any bigger than a particle of dust. So what is it that we're attached to? What is it here that we're calling self, this body? Particle of dust. There's a strong sense of self when we're identified with our thoughts and emotions with all the internal stories that we tell about ourselves or others so one one little exercise you could do i've mentioned it in a few of my groups i found it really helpful is it very clear i think to you by now how often we just get lost in long trains of thought. You know, we're we're just carried away, and we're in this whole internal movie, the internal drama, with all kinds of attendant emotions. You know, and then at a certain point, we wake up from being lost. Well, that also happens many, many times a day with quickly passing thoughts that are not big, they're not dramatic, they're not troublesome maybe a plan or a memory or something, you know, relatively innocuous. But the thought comes, and for even a short period of time, maybe it's 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes, for a certain period of time, we're lost in the thought. And then kind of we wake up and we're back aware of whatever we're doing. This happens countless times a day these quickly passing thoughts that go through the mind. It's a great exercise just to set the intention. As you move about during the day, this, this can be outside the formal times of formal meditation, where you just have to watch out for those thoughts, you know, so that we become more aware of all those moments when we're dropping into the dream of thought which often has to do in one way or another with the sense of self. You know, maybe it's a plan and something we're gonna do or a memory of something we have done or some comment we have. Very often the content of the thoughts are self-referential in one way or another. But because they're not particularly troublesome and they're quick, most of us don't pay much attention to it. We're just going through the day and, you know, the thoughts come and go, we're basically ignoring them. It was very fruitful for me in my practice when I began to have the strong intention to keep an eye out for these thoughts. And it was was quite remarkable, you know, because then you are really bringing the practice right into the midst of your daily life. Because you can see in all of those situations the difference between being lost in the dream of a thought and being awake, being aware. You'll have thousands upon thousands of opportunities every day to just notice that. So I I would really urge you to, you know, begin making that experiment. It was very, very revealing. we begin to see, as we become more aware, and I think you've probably already glimpsed this, as you notice in your practice throughout the day of thoughts coming and going and emotions coming and going, that in, seeing, in being aware of them as they arise and seeing their impermanence, seeing how they just come and go, we begin to get glimpses, genuine genuine glimpses and realizations of thoughts not being self and emotions not being self. They're arising out of conditions. You know, and the conditions change and the thought disappears. So this is, this is just a little description that was from a t- Tibetan tradition. Thoughts and emotions wander through the mind like clouds, having no roots, no home." And I love that little image of roots and home. Because we often relate to the thoughts and emotions that are arising as having roots. (laughs) This is, I'm thinking, or I'm feeling this. So I like the image of just imagining a cloud in the sky with a root coming down tethered to the ground. It's such a ridiculous image. But that's exactly what we're doing with these thoughts and emotions. They are really just like clouds in the sky. They are untethered, but we tether them by not being aware and not being mindful that they're there, and then identifying with them. So a thought comes, and our attitude about it is, I'm thinking or I'm feeling this. Not seeing that that overlay of the I and mine is extra. That's not in the thought itself. It's not in the emotion itself. (laughs) So what we're doing is really, we're tethering these internal experiences You know, giving it a root and tethering it to some imaginary sense of self. We're adding the I and mind to it. So, one thing that misleads us is that when we're looking at experience, and what we're calling ourself, there is a recognisable pattern. You know, so I get up in the morning, look in the mirror, yeah, that's me. <laughs> you know, it's it's like I'm seeing a certain image, and it's recognisable. It's not too dissimilar from the day before, and it gives rise to that sense of self, of me, of Joseph, because the pattern is recognisable. But when we look more deeply, it's like looking underneath the skin. When we look underneath the pattern, we begin to see that there is no I, no self, no Joseph behind it. It's not that there's a self to whom all these elements belong. The thought is the thinker. The thought is thinking itself. It's not that there's an I who is having the thought. The thought is a mental phenomena doing its own thing. The thought thinks. But we add to it, I'm thinking, or this is my thought. That's extra, that's not in the experience itself. The same thing with emotions. It's love that loves. It's fear that fears. It's anger that angers. It's joy That joys. And life is a whole set of different conditions internally and externally that give rise to these phenomena. So something is giving rise. There are causes and conditions for thoughts to come and emotions to come. It's just coming to the realization that they don't belong to anyone. So I hope you can get even just the glimmer of this possibility. This whole life process, it's empty phenomena, empty of self, empty phenomena rolling on. Moment after moment, there's the physical sensations that are rising passing and thoughts coming and going and emotions coming and going. It's just this flow. It's this flow of impermanent changing phenomena. And if we want to say the self is anything, we could say, well, the self is the flow of changing phenomena. It's not that it's a thing to whom the experiences belong. We're just, it's like the current of a river. There's no river apart from the flowing water. So this most subtle aspect of this flow of appearances, that even when we really do get a sense that the physical elements, the physical sensations, are just coming and going, thoughts are coming and going, emotions are coming and going. So we're beginning to get a sense, even even. You know, just the beginning of a possibility of this selfless nature, that they're rising out of conditions, they don't belong to me, we don't have to claim them. But the most subtle aspect of our experience, which gives rise to this view of self, this strongly held view of self, which is common, you know, for most of us, it happens when we identify with Consciousness. You know, the elements, the physical elements, are pretty obvious, and even thoughts and emotions, we can see pretty clearly they're impermanent, changing nature. But even after a lot of practice, we can still see how we are identifying with the knowing, and so create a knower. Knowing is part of the process but we identify with that part of the process and so we create the sense of an observer. We create the sense of a witness. All of this is changing, but I'm the one knowing it all. So this, this is a place that takes a lot of care and attention and subtlety to really cut through the identification With consciousness, with knowing, with the knowing faculty. (laughs) (laughs) The clock was behind me. (laughs) Well, tonight I'm going to (laughs) finish because I can't leave it here. (laughs) (laughs) It's just too interesting. But through a growing awareness, we can begin to see and investigate how consciousness itself arises out of conditions. It's arising and changing in each moment. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to offer just a few suggestions and techniques for how to cut through this identification with knowing. Because that's the... It's like consciousness becomes the last holdout of self because it's so subtle. You know, the other aspects of our experience, we could begin to get a handle on, it's not easy, but it's not that difficult. But to actually become mindful of knowing, mindful of consciousness, mindful of awareness, mindful so that we don't identify with it. We see that that, too, is just an impersonal process. So that takes takes a very dedicated uh looking and i'll I'll offer some suggestions for how to do this tomorrow so first i just want to give one image which may help us understand the difference between our superficial perception of things and the deeper realization of what's actually there so if you go outside you know, after a rainstorm, maybe the sun comes out and you see a rainbow. And we all have, you know, it's a pleasant experience, it's enjoyable, it's beautiful. Oh, look at the rainbow in the sky. But if we look or investigate a little more carefully and just ask the question, well, what is a rainbow? Is a rainbow something in and of itself? No, it's an appearance That occurs when there's a certain combination of moisture and light and air you know the conditions come together and a rainbow appears but a rainbow is not something in itself it's an appearance dependent on changing conditions joseph self each one of you is like a rainbow there is an appearance We're seeing what we see, so it's not denying that level. But it's a designation for an appearance, and we want to see what gives rise to the appearance. And that is all of these changing elements, which I described, none of which can be taken to be self, just as the air is not the rainbow, and the light is not the rainbow, and the moisture is not the rainbow. These are just the conditions which give rise to its appearance. So the Buddha gave a very straightforward and simple instruction to his son, Rahula. And it would be good to practice with this. This is something the Buddha gave to his son as a vehicle for his awakening, his liberation. He said that every aspect of mind and body should be seen with perfect wisdom as it is. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. So just imagine applying that little mantra of understanding, that wisdom mantra, to every aspect of your experience, especially those where you see yourself getting caught. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. It's the reminder. So it becomes, it really becomes a mantra of liberation. Now there's one very, I'm almost at the end. (laughs) There's one uh, unexpected consequence of this deepening realization of selflessness. And that is, as we, as we settle back into the freedom of that space, of things just appearing and disappearing according to causes and conditions, and it's not referring back to anyone. What we're calling self is this flow of changing conditions. There's not a self behind it to whom it's happening. The more we understand that, there is a growing sense of connection a growing sense of intimacy. Why? Because we realize that from the beginning there was no one there to be separate. And in that understanding we begin to appreciate that selflessness and love are the same thing. These are not two different things. They're just different ways of understanding it. So, I'll end with just this teaching from one of the great Tibetan masters, Kala Rinpoche. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in the world of self, of I, of Joseph, of rainbow, of concepts. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. So that's, that's really a profound realization. You know, often people, selflessness, not self, I'm not this, I'm not that, and people get all scared by it. But it's like stepping out of a prison of contraction when we realize this we see that we are nothing there's no self to whom things belong but being nothing we are everything we settle into the totality of what is actually happening moment to moment so this is this is the great transformation you know of insight in our practice so let's sit for a few hours and <laughs> Since you are on a roll of extended attention. or I ring the bell there's one more little teaching to end with in case there was still some confusion about self and not self and it's, it's not this is from a Tibetan teacher it's not that you're not real we all think we're real and that's not wrong You are real, but you think you're really real. (laughs) You exaggerate it, so just remember that. (laughs) Real, but not really real.